0: Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pojola. The politics of victimhood. Over the last several years, various voting groups have been activated and motivated by a simple feeling. Somehow they have been wronged. Republicans claim they are the victims of a biased media. Democrats claim they are the victims of President Trump and a system that favors Republicans. Some claims of victimhood are rooted in truth, while others are simply a way of riling up the base. Today, we'll take a look at how getting people to feel like they're victims of something has become the norm in American politics, and take a look back at how it's worked in 2019 and how it may not have worked in some cases. And to begin, I'm joined by ABC's political director, Rick Klein, and chief White House correspondent, Jonathan Carl.
1: Actually, the, the subject makes me think of a book written by Charlie Sykes, who, of course, is a uh, prominent uh, Conservative uh, radio host in Wisconsin and now a prominent critic of the president But he wrote a book uh, way back in like gosh. It probably goes back to the 90s uh, uh, Called a nation of Victim victims and if I remember the if I remember the subtitle it was Everybody's a victim and nobody's responsible which <laughs> I kind of like um, But but it but it is it is interesting so my, my, my point in bringing that up is that uh, is that for you know conservatives this was a this was a theme uh, for conservatives for a long time is kind of de- decrying this uh, uh, the, the, the victimization of uh, victimhoodization of of America and uh, this you know everybody kind of claiming status uh, by how they're victimized and it, and it is interesting that the standard bearer for uh, the Republicans and now for conservatives uh, such as they are uh, is is a president who often portrays himself as a victim and he, and he has continued to do so even from the Oval Office uh, you know his constant reframe of presidential harassment never has a president been more harassed than me um, but it, it is it is a a, a common and recurring theme for President Trump. And
2: you'd think, in some level, that if the, the president uh, campaigns on, on victimhood, he rides into the Oval Office, he won! They, they're winning! But there's so much in what he says, even on, on the campaign trail, almost every time he goes out, that, that actually furthers that argument. And, and he has cast this whole impeachment effort as uh, an attempt to undermine the, not just his presidency, but the legitimacy of the votes of those who brought him there. And I think it's key to his political Identity, this sense of being under attack, being under siege, and being yes, the victim of a political culture that he portrays as hopelessly corrupt.
0: As a political strategy, painting yourself as a victim, how successful is that?
1: Well, it's it's worked for Donald Trump in terms of solidifying uh, his support. The the message is remarkably consistent uh, from the message to the message that he had uh, during the campaign. Um, You know, kind of familiar list of enemies that are essentially uh, not just victimizing Donald Trump, uh, but victimizing all of you out there. Um, You know, they they uh, they 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 question you. And obviously, Democrats have played into this um, um, by, you know, some Democrats by portraying uh, Trump supporters in the words of uh, infamously uh, by Hillary Clinton. you know, a, a basket of deplorables.
2: And, and I think uh, the the way that the, the president has cast these political battles, uh, he, he sees enemies everywhere. He sees conspiracies everywhere. And, and that, I think, you hear that when you talk to voters who go to his rallies who support him. They are backing him up because whatever missteps uh, may happen day to day, whatever areas they may not agree in terms of his temperament or his actions, the view of him as taking on the establishment and taking on the swamp. uh, It it is a powerful notion that I think often defies even the evidence that's out there, but it it allows his supporters to say, look, whatever you're telling me here, it's not as bad as what the other side would be doing without Donald Trump. It's just absolutely critical to what the Republican Party identity is in the age of Trump.
1: It's also counterintuitive though, isn't it, Rick, that you have you know, you play up this notion of, of, of we're victims and we're fighting back, and, and the kind of victimization theme, at a time when the economy is great. Um, I mean, certainly there are, there are real problems around the country, and people have real struggles, uh, and there are you know there are there are tough issues, from the opioid crisis to uh, um, to the way technology is replacing uh, you know so many jobs. But ultimately, I mean, the, the unemployment rate is, is basically as low as it's as it's ever been. Um, and the economy is uh is where it is, and you would think that that would be a logical theme and for for a president presiding under those circumstances.
2: And the president can't decide what the theme is. He even at his rallies, he asks people to vote, take a vote with their voices. Do you want his theme to be "Make America Great Again" or "Keep America Great"? That's the tension <laughs> right. right there. Is that he knows how how powerful the notion of "Make America Great Again" is and was, but he wants to portray that America's pretty great under his. But leadership. he's
1: not a "Morning in America" type of campaigner. right? you know no. I, I I think I think that's why even though, um, you know, I, I've seen that vote. I don't know where it was in Hershey, but but frequently the, the crowd likes, uh, you know, keep America great. But I think that Trump keeps asking because he he, he he finds it easier to be the fighter, to be going against the grain, even though now... You know, I mean, it's hard to fight the establishment when you're the president of the United States. And by definition, I mean, I would argue the establishment.
0: Well, you you referenced Ronald Reagan there in in his campaign in in 1984. It seems that politics has, has shifted so much in the last 10, 15 years, or you could even argue in the last four years, from an optimistic view of America to a pessimistic view of America, and, and how many victims can you rally to the polls as opposed to how many voters and supporters you can rally to the polls?
2: And I think that's going to be a defining theme of this next election, is is how you get people energized and enthusiastic around it, and a lot of it is to do with scare tactics. And that's not new in politics, but I, I agree that there has been a shift toward uh, really scare tactics about what the other side is about to do. And I think you see that in the emerging Trump campaign. Uh, You certainly see it in how Democrats are running against Trump. It is often what you're against. And one principle I think that has proven to be true over the last 10 or 15 years is that running against something is a more powerful organizing notion than running behind something, running for something. And that's why you saw so many change elections. Starting with the 2006 election, almost every election cycle has been a powerful voice, a powerful vote for change and i think it's because the grass is kind of always greener putting 2020
0: aside for a moment the use of victimhood in political campaigns has proven effective over and over again but why what is it about being a victim that motivates so many people we'll try to answer that question from a psychological perspective after this Welcome back to a special episode of the Como Politicast, the politics of victimhood. So far, we've examined how President Trump was able to win by making his supporters feel like they were victims of the system and how Democrats are starting to respond in the 2020 campaign. But what is the psychological basis for such a strategy? I'm joined now by Mark Allen Smith, professor of political science at the University of Washington.
3: Well, I think there are a couple of phenomena that come together here that are broader than just The politics of of victimhood and it relates to just how we are as human beings how we're wired through our evolutionary history Um, so for one thing we are more attuned to negative events than positive events of the same magnitude and we're also more attuned to the prospect of losing something than of gaining something so imagine Mm -hmm. some little kid um, you know boy or girl happens to have a cookie when they acquired the cookie they were probably pretty happy to grab that cookie. Now imagine that it is in their hand, they're preparing to eat it, you take that cookie from them. Imagine the reaction upon losing the cookie is gonna be greater in absolute value in terms of their pleasure, as well as the amount of (laughs) of noise they generate, compared to when they gained it in the first place. And as adults, you know we're not immune to those that same phenomena. We we are going to fight harder to protect what we have, and we are more attuned to negative events and emotions than to, to positive ones. And I think that's going to feed into the to the victim uh, appeal. And and one of the things that that I've
0: I've seen particularly, or at least in in my analysis of things, is the twenty sixteen election in which Donald Trump was elected. He was successful based on getting his followers to feel victimized, whether it was uneducated whites, which he won by a, a large margin, uh, or, you know, the the middle class or, you know, the manufacturing sector. They were all the victims of a political system or an economy that wasn't working for them as well. He was able to activate those
3: voters. Yeah, that's that's right. And I think... Hillary Clinton was just a terrible matchup for that kind of rhetoric because Trump was going to people saying, you're getting shafted. Who's shafting you? It's the coastal elites. It's China. It's bad trade deals. It's the immigrants. It's the minorities. So it, it's this cluster of, of you know political forces that he would say to people, that's who's, who's shafting you. Meanwhile, Hillary Clinton's message was... You're not getting shafted. You're doing just great. Well, a lot of people right now they don't feel like they're they're doing great. Um, partly that's just a, a bit of a national malaise, and that we went from, you know, the sole superpower in the 1990s, where you know the rise of China, and now just just the general sense in the country is we're not as dominant as we once were, and a lot of people frankly are struggling economically. Um, they have difficulty, you know, paying the bills on a, on a month-to-month basis, and and uh, have. Difficulty paying for health care and child care and all kinds of other other expenses. And so in a climate like that, where a lot of people don't feel like they're doing well, Trump gave them a message of here are the people to blame. Hillary Clinton had nobody to blame. Whereas I think in retrospect, had Bernie Sanders been the candidate for the Democratic Party, he would have told people it's the one percent. It's the super rich. That's who's shafting you. They're outsourcing the jobs. They're keeping more of the profits for themselves. They're not paying higher wages. You're getting shafted, and that's who's doing the shafted, the shafting. Whereas um, Clinton, she just had no answer for, for Trump's uh, message on that score.
0: For a political candidate, for regardless of what office it happens to be president or dog
3: catcher down at the local level, does it help to have an enemy? Oh, I think so. And that ties into what we started with, with uh, you know, negativity bias and bias toward protecting what you have versus what you're trying to gain. And so if you can go, go to someone and say, you're under threat, your way of life is in danger, there are people coming to get you, and we need to stop them. That, that's a very powerful message. And compare that to going to someone to say, you're doing pretty well, and I'd like to make it so that you do better. Well, I mean, it's not a bad message, but that's just not going to mm. be as potent as one that tells someone you're a victim, you're under threat right now, there are people coming after you, and we need to go and stop them right now.
0: But didn't that more positive aspect of campaigning, that you're doing okay and, and we're on the right track, didn't that work in 84 with Reagan? If it's morning in America and we're back on track?
3: Yeah, it's it certainly did, and I think this kind of ties into some of the other things we, we talked about earlier, where um, just kind of the whole mood of the country has has shifted, and so the victim approach, where you, as a political leader, try to mobilize people on grounds of them being victim, that's going to work better now than it used to. Uh, why is because, that? But why, why now? Why are we seeing more of it? I mean, I don't have a complete answer, but I think part of it is just the, the sense of America our, our self-image we're we're a lot less confident in a country as we used to be. Um, and then if you break that down to the individual level, um, if you look at uh, for example, data on how likely people are to do better than their parents economically. So there's an economist at uh, Harvard named Raj Raj Chetty. I don't know if you're familiar with his work mm-hmm. at all, but he uh, um, somehow was able to get a, a large body of of like tax returns and multi-generational and able to show that, If you were born earlier in the 20th century, you were extremely likely to do better than your parents. But by the time we get to people born, say, in the 1980s, so people who today would be, say, in their 30s, it's like a 50 50 shot. So the the amount of upward mobility in this country really has dropped. And if a lot of people are feeling they're not doing as well as they would like to be doing, that opens them up for this message of you're a victim somebody is cheating you let's go after the people who are cheating you
0: with as successful as donald trump was in 2016 in using a victimhood strategy would the democrats be smart to try something similar in the coming year we'll take a look at that when the como politicast continues in just a moment Welcome back to a special episode of the Como Politicast, the politics of victimhood. As 2019 comes to a close, the political world is looking ahead to the 2020 election. The campaign is already underway and has been for some time. The Democratic Party, though, still reeling from its loss in 2016, is vowing to do whatever it takes to beat Donald Trump. But are Democratic voters willing and able to see themselves as victims? And is rhetoric enough to win an election? Once
3: again, Professor of Political Science Mark Allen-Smith. The rhetoric matters, but it also has to resonate with people. So you, you can't create rhetoric out of out of whole cloth. There has to be something there that you're tapping into. So I think it's really an, an uh, iterative dynamic between people's actual experiences and then what political leaders are on the scene to mobilize those experiences, to articulate them for people? Um, I mean, I find it interesting that people are actually less likely to call themselves victims than you would think from the political campaigns. So a lot of the, the so-called you know Trump voters who are mobilized on grounds of, of you know the, the white working class and you're getting shafted by trade deals and immigrants and minorities and so on, they didn't necessarily always think of themselves as victims, but when Trump comes along and articulates that message they would resonate to it. Um, so I think both the, the experience and the rhetoric matters. They, they work in tandem.
0: And then as we head into the 2020 election, we've got this wide field of Democratic candidates. It almost seems like every one of them is trying that strategy. They're the victim of Donald Trump. They're trying to activate voters do you, in, in that sense. Do you think that that's going to work? Because certainly, it's, as we've talked about before, it's polarized the nation.
3: Yeah, I think that's probably their be- their best strategy, because for one thing, it's really hard to govern this country. I mean, Obama found that out during his two terms in office. Trump is finding that out during during his term. It's a lot easier to mobilize against something than to mobilize for something. So as long as Trump is there at the top and and you know he's sitting on approval ratings of you know forty percent, forty two percent, something like that, most of the country actually is not a, not a, uh, approving of him. Uh, if you can just say. Trump's selling the country down the toilet. We need to get rid of Trump. That's actually a, a pretty decent message. But if a Democrat were to win, now now the shoe's on the other foot, and you actually have to have a positive agenda of your own. And right now, I'm not seeing a whole lot of that from from most of them in terms of how are you going to you know, turn this around if you do manage to, to prevail?
0: Do you see anyone in, in the field who's really playing
3: up this strategy? I mean, they're all kind of dancing around that. I, I would say none of them are... Are doing that anywhere near the extent to which Trump did in 2016? Um, they're they're definitely mobilizing on an anti-Trump message, but not really a anti-victim message. They're not trying to tell people, hey, you're you know you're a victim, and we need to we need to to, to come at you. Um, I mean, at least they're not using that language overtly. Maybe it's it's kind of there in the, the background and some of their policy proposals might be designed to, to deal with that. So something like a you know national health uh, health care plan, that's designed to relieve mm-hmm. the insecurity that a lot of people feel about unpayable health care bills. And, of course, there's a larger debate about how do you pay for that? Mm-hmm. and Elizabeth Warren's gotten into uh, trouble on, 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 on that score.
0: The Democrats seem to use that strategy more than the the republicans in that they're the victims of a systematic injustice is that fair
3: right yeah i think that's fair the, even if they're not using the term quote victim they are talking about injustices they are talking about you know immoral policies and practices and institutions and and so a lot of these concepts they do kind of overlap so if you tell people you know, the, 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 the system is, is designed in a certain way that is making your life difficult. Even if you don't use the actual word victim, that's clearly the concept you're, you're getting at. And so I do think a lot of these appeals, even if they don't foreground... That kind of rhetoric at least it's, it's it's present there and that's part of why it is is resonating and working
0: mark allen smith professor of political science at the university of washington we're going to take a quick commercial break but when we come back we'll talk about how both parties have played the victim over the past year both in national politics and some closer to home all of that when this special edition of the como Politicast continues after this Welcome back to this special episode of the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula, the politics of victimhood. 2019 saw a lot of victimhood in politics. The biggest example, no doubt, is President Trump, who has argued that he is the victim of a Democratic witch hunt in a Democratic Party that has been out to get him since day one. But during the impeachment process, Democrats have argued that the country has become a victim of a corrupt president. Joining me now are Democratic strategist Kathy Allen and Republican strategist Randy Peppel. Randy, let me start with you. Do you think the Democratic argument on impeachment is
4: working? I think I could take it a lot more seriously if I didn't have a, a, a set of mints on my desk that says impeachments which had been prepared by the Democrats before Donald Trump took office. Now, you, you know, uh, and your listeners know, that I am not a fan of the president. I think that his actions are deplorable in a lot of areas. But what's even more deplorable is the impeachment process that has been undertaken by the Democrats. Totally partisan and totally devoid of, of facts. Uh, and none of the stuff that they were talking about over the last two years, whether it was the Mueller report, whether it was bribery or what have you, none of that is part of what they actually are trying to impeach him on. And it's indeed a sad day for America that that's what came out of the House of Representatives.
5: Well, actually, I, I sort of agree that uh, that's not none of these other things that Randy talked about were part of what this impeachment was. What this impeachment was is anybody above the law. Including our president, and more important, if you know something's right and you're asked to do something wrong, do you have the guts to stand up for it? I think that's the moral dilemma: is you know, are you going to take the impeachment, which looks like it was some sort of a preordained span of consciousness for Democrats, uh, or do you take a look at someone who actually was bribing an, a national, international president about? just doing something that was fundamentally wrong, politically unethical. And more importantly, it's just a matter of now, as we play this out, does it continue to bog the American public down more out of sheer boredom and insider stuff?
0: Well, the Republican criticism of this, and Randy, you touched on this, has been that the Democrats have been wanting to impeach the president since January 20th, 2017. Certainly some of them have, but there wasn't really any serious discussion of it within the higher ranks, at least that, not that we're aware of, until this issue of Ukraine hit. Is that fair? Is that a fair criticism of the Democrats?
4: It's a completely fair criticism. And again, not because of the president's lack of uh, of, of uh, uh, civility, his lack of good conduct. But the Democrats have been trying to do this all along. And, and the fact that it took this phone call in July... The day after Robert Mueller himself testified on Capitol Hill that they finally found the hook that they could hang impeachment on doesn't matter. They've been trying to do this all along, and that's what's sad about this process, is it devolves into why a is complete, that sad? It, if you get it, to the it, point it, it where somebody de- you've
5: hated for a long time is turning around, deciding that, you know, they finally found you with the, you know, with the backroom key to the bank? Do you really think yeah, see, this, is this is not a
4: backroom key? This is something the Democrats have been looking for the entire time. There's no backroom key here. Is, is Donald Trump somebody they don't like? Absolutely. Does he behave in a manner that I would want a president to behave in? Absolutely. He does not. But for the House of Representatives to vote on a straight party line vote for impeachment is sad, for the House of Representatives. But as a political
0: strategy, how does playing the victim work? Does it help or hurt? As we head into the 2020 campaign, I'm sure the president will again play that card now that he has been impeached, largely along party lines.
5: You know what really hurts you guys? Women. When a woman actually plays the victim card, she's out. She is out. You're not going to see the Warrens of the world do that. Even if a woman has had breast cancer, if a woman has had a major um, operation, uh, she has to keep that quiet, because if there is a perception of weakness on her part, anything to do with victim, they abandon. You don't want a victim standing there defending you. You, you want know what, people Kathy, that are to lead the charge.
4: Because Hillary Clinton played the victim card over and over in the 2016 campaign i think well, it the problem helped is, her didn't it you play the if you play the victim card most people have gone through times in their lives when they've been the victim they've been the person who's victimized i guess and they they just don't see it as a reason for why you should vote for someone because they've been the victim or that you should support them through their victimhood and too often it's played in washington dc is, you know, victimhood is, you know, it's like patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. That's what the victims do, is when you've got your back against the wall and you've got nothing else to do, you say, I'm the victim here. And that's what Trump's doing. And it's disgusting. And yeah, but I, you see I, but it on all, both sides he's a uh, of that's the, the Problem.
5: I'm not sure, Randy. I think, well, maybe there is a difference when you've got a bully guys with a very, I would say, not only big profile, but this, you know, hunk of a huge guy that's sort of like, you know... Killing everything in sight. I just don't see it. I uh, I know for wow. women it, or young people, it plays against them. If people think that they oh oh poor pitiful me oh I haven't been able to get anything out of this, I think it plays against them. And people just use it as a metaphor for how effective they will or will not be if elected.
0: But didn't using that strategy work for the president in 2016? <laughs> well, uh, he was able to say to his supporters, "You're the victim of a corrupt system, and and we're going to change that." I
5: don't think that that. That's a victim situation. I think that that's more of a, just a use of words. Victim means uh, everybody thinks you were dumped on, or at least, there's a general appearance, that you were. I think that when it comes to that, you say it's it's government. That's too vague for people to think that you're you're definitely you know you've been victimized. Now, have you been left out of the circle for funding and equal treatment? Probably, but victim. Uh, no, nah, that's a more emotional and more personal status.
0: That's Democratic strategist Kathy Allen and Republican strategist Randy Peppel. When we come back, we'll take a look at how victimhood played into the two biggest local stories of 2019, the Seattle City Council elections and Initiative 976, when this special episode of the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to this special episode of the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. 2019 saw a lot of victimhood in politics, even here in the Northwest. I'm joined now by Matt Markovich, who covers local politics for us. And looking back on 2019, two things stick out for me. The Seattle City Council elections and Initiative 976. Seattle City Council, I mean, that got really heated. You had, what, 53 candidates running at some point in the primary. That got whittled down to 14 for the seven open seats. And uh, I, I saw in many of the campaigns victimhood, you know, you're the victim of of a corrupt system, and elect us, we're going to change it. And that was kind of a theme of the campaign, wasn't it?
6: Well, I think it was uh, was more of a sea change. I always use sea change of a city council with seven open seats and uh, so much frustration with the city council over the several years dealing with homelessness and crime. Um, We saw, people saw, this is going to be it. We can go from a progressive council to more of a business-friendly council. That was all the talk. Early polling showed that that could happen. Uh, I was privy to polling done by in, in the summertime that all the incumbents were going to go down to defeat because of all the backlash of uh, housing and homelessness and lack of uh, you know visible response. A lot of talk like that. So I tell you, it's, I don't want to say it sold me, but it... I thought it was going to happen. So we kept on thinking that there was going to be a sea change in November. And then then the big money came in <laughs> after those 14 candidates were selected in the primary and they started running. And then the decision made was made by some key funders, namely Amazon, to start, you know, Amazon's famous one-day, one, $1 million-dollar contribution to case the uh, pack that represents uh, business-friendly candidates supported by the chamber of uh, Seattle Chamber of Commerce. Um, I think that that was a pivotal point for a lot of swing voters.
0: Well, and it, and it gave the Shama Sawants, the uh, Lorena Gonzalez's of the world, an enemy to point to mm-hmm. because. Shama Swan in particular has been saying to Seattleites you're the victim
6: of Amazon Amazon's done all of this to you that gave them the enemy yeah they've been saying that they brought that argument up right front and forward that Amazon's been profiting off uh, Seattle for a long time and yes it's been bringing big salaries here but it's been driving a lot of the housing prices up and that's happened everywhere where there's a tech hub like San Francisco Uh, but they need to pay more of their fair share and then they got out of the head tax uh, a year ago so all those arguments came up because of this one donation, and so it fueled that those arguments again against big business taking over our city council. What an easy theme to sell. Big business is going to take over our city council if you allow Amazon their way and all their money they brought in at the last moment. And we saw the polling just before all that money, and then we the polling is what resulted in November, the final poll, and it showed that, wow, we may have even a more progressive council than we had before.
0: And uh, they're going to enact some very significant changes, likely, in the next couple of years. But the other thing that really stuck in my mind is this continuing fight over Initiative 976, the the battles of Tim Iman, as someone Mm -hmm. once said. This was uh, his first initiative back in 1998. He's brought it up a couple of times after the legislature, after its uh, requisite two years, Uh, redid it, and uh, now it it looks like this one's uh, headed for the state Supreme Court again Mm -hmm. and may get struck down once again. But uh, this is nothing new, but uh, Tim Iman's back at it, and this time he's running for governor.
6: Yeah, I think uh, that's an also-ran. I'm a skeptic, I'll put it right out there, that he can get enough of eastern Washington to support him, even though he's the rallying guy to lower their taxes. Uh, The car tabs in eastern Washington are a heck of a lot lower already than... People who that they pay on Western Washington, and this is where all the har, high car tabs are, and with the additional fees. So, if we talk about Tim Eyman as the running for governor, good luck, Tim. <laughs> um, but uh, as for initiative 976, you know, whether it will stick, um, you know, I the it, 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 you would think it won't uh, because they're really going to go after the. Ballot title, which was written by the attorney general Tim my has been saying the attorney general is biased. He doesn't want to defend nine nine seven six. He doesn't want he doesn't support it yet in in the court. He has to support it. So there's a lot of different battles going on here. The the issue needs can't be heard in King County because King County overwhelmingly supported. Uh, excuse me, tried to defeat I-976 in the ballot, Uh, one of six counties that voted against it. The other 33 counties in the state voted for it. They wanted car tabs, so um, it's going to be debated. I think going forward into 2020 is, what will the state legislature do? There was talk about having a special session before they convene in January. That's not going to happen. So, Will state lawmakers in their s- small amount of time, this is a, not one of those long sessions, this is a short one, will they dedicate time to try and fix I-976 and its ballot issues? This is uh, something that has
0: often pitted east against west. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a- Having grown up on in, in eastern Washington and then moved over here, there is, I-, I would say, the sense on the other side of the mountains that they're all victims of Seattle politics Mm -hmm. and that Seattle dictates everything. And there's this profound hatred uh, amongst a lot of people of what Seattle and Olympia does. And uh, Tim Iman certainly has tapped into that with the issue Mm of $30 car
6: tabs over the last 20 years. And I think the argument that voters say doesn't matter touches a lot of people. And I think that even crosses R's and D's right there, that if you, if the voters voted one way in a state on initiative, that's the will of the voters. And that's a very strong argument, regardless of the financial impacts it's going to have on the state. This is what the voters said. Now, if you need to fix it, legislature, go ahead and fix it. If you want to undo it, the courts have to do that. But Take it like it is. This is what the the vote of the people. It's almost like the, you know, Eastern Washington, we know, is prim- prim- uh, primarily Republican, and the Republican argument for Trump is, hey, it was the voters' will. He is our president. You can't just take it away from him because you don't like him. You have to follow the voters' will. And the same way that same, those same arguments can be used for I-976, you know, it was the voters' will. That's what should be the precedent first. Then- Work on that. You know, if you want to change it so that you can have car tab fees higher, then do it then. But start with I-976 because that was a voter's will. And that's a very strong
0: argument. Do you think Tim Iman is getting more people to his cause with this fight?
6: I think on that basis, yeah, because he's hammering that one, That one, uh, call it applause line. It's very easy to understand. You know, they're, the, the politicians, primarily the Democrats, are ignoring you, the voter's will. They're ignoring you. We know what you said. It's a very simple argument, and that can resonate with a lot of people, and it can resonate, it'll definitely resonate in Eastern Washington, where they overwhelmingly supported I-976. Now, there are some people, you can argue, and I'm just speculating here, that uh, some middle-of-the-road people say, yeah, I... Uh, a, vote, a vote is a vote. We should honor every vote that's taken. I mean, we do it with some elections. Why can't we do it with I-976? So he's tapping into that factor right there. And so I think he'll get some mileage with that.
0: Do you think that is enough to have him give him a good run at the governorship? Because as it stands right now... He's the biggest name on the Republican side running against Jay Inslee. You have uh, Lauren Culp, the mayor or a uh, police chief of the town of Republic, who's running on a pro-gun campaign, and then you have Phil Fortunato, uh, the state representative uh, or state senator, Phil Fortunato, who's also running on a
6: similar pro-gun campaign. I, but but they don't have the financial campaign baggage that Tim Eyman has. I think if he's serious about what's going to happen. His opponents as well as the media are gonna dive deep into the the laws, the you know, the the shenanigans you can call that he's done with his money and to finance his campaigns and what he's done personally to tap into his campaign funds and what that's what the attorney general is accusing him of. So he's gonna that's gonna be scrutinized big time. I know he's going to be listening to this. Mm. And he's going to call and text me. He always does. <laughs> he's,
0: he does the same to me. <laughs>
6: <laughs> but is he a man of shenanigans or is he incredible? I mean, mm. uh, it's, it's that argument of how thick is your skin, how, how 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 much of a stand-up guy you are. And that's where he's going to have to really fend for himself and, and fight for that because he's got the tone of a lot of voters they like. You know, cut. I don't want to pay any more taxes, uh, vote of the will of the people. That's an easy argument for him to make and he's, he's gonna he's pushing for that but I think Tim I the man when they start looking into how he got to where he was and in his finances and is he is there any shadiness going on there I think that's what's gonna really undo him.
0: Well, and uh, it'll certainly make for a very interesting 2020. Matt Markovich, thank you so much as always. you're welcome. And as we wrap up, think about one question what is victimhood? Simply put, it is the idea that you have been wronged in some way, and therefore someone owes you something. And the old cliche of misery loves company can be a way to explain the rise of Donald Trump. He was able to get his supporters to rally together in the common thought that they were the victims of a corrupt and ineffective political system. You see a similar strategy with Tim Iman and his campaign for Initiative 976. Shama Sawant and much of the Seattle City Council argue that Seattleites are the victims of Amazon. And the Democratic presidential candidates say the country is a victim of Donald Trump. As a political strategy, it is old, but it is effective. And that will do it for this episode of the Como PolitiCast. My thanks to ABC's Rick Klein and Jonathan Carl, as well as Scott Goldberg and Sarah Sweeney. I'd also like to thank Mark Allen Smith, Randy Pepple, Kathy Allen, and Matt Markovich. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.